0: Lord Jesus, would you help our hearts? Would you keep us from becoming dull in our ears, from becoming cold in our inner being, because of familiar, familiarity in the sense that we already know this? Would you help us instead to, even if it's just a, a small bit, Lord, to have a, a glimpse of this incredible good news that you've sent the news of your coming into this world, the beginning of your rescue mission, the very turning point of history. Would you let this hit us afresh and lead us into pondering and wondering at all that you've done. Help us to do this and so much more through your word, Jesus, we pray in your mighty name. Amen. One of my family's favorite stories is called The Greatest Christmas Pageant Ever. It's a little kid's book, super fun. It's about a small, unremarkable church that has a very remarkable Christmas pageant one year. It usually, year after year happens like a well-oiled machine, only this year, a family that no one would have expected decides to sign up. The Herdmans. Uh, The Herdmans are the problem kids of the neighborhood Uh, They swear, they are are mean, they steal, and they almost never would, you would expect them to either show up to church or to be welcome. So everyone is shocked when the Herdmans not only show up, but want to be a part of the Christmas pageant. As the story unfolds, you find out the Herdmans know nothing about the Christmas story. They have ulterior motives for joining up. But they become center stage. They have pivotal roles in all this. And one of the big dramas is who's going to get to play the Virgin Mary. There are two candidates that are contrasted with each other. There is picture-perfect preacher daughter, Alice Wendelkin. And then there is the biggest, baddest, meanest herdman of all, Imogene. And of course, you know how this turns out, Imogene ends up winning the role. But as the story unfolds, something odd is revealed. Turns out that Imogene might be a better picture of Mary than the picture-perfect preacher's daughter. Because as you look carefully at the Christmas story, it really, after all, is a story of an unexpected, sort of on the margins, teenage girl, a little bit scared, certainly not sure how this whole thing's going to turn out. And Imogene, rough around the edges, embodies that better than picture-perfect Alice Wendelkin does. Now, we live in a day where there is a lot of misunderstanding regarding Mary. So much so that I think that the actual amazing sister in the Lord that she is, is lost on many of us. Uh, Maybe you've heard of her described as a picture-perfect woman of sorts. The Catholic Church is mainly the one responsible for this, calling her the Queen of Heaven or Co-Redemptrix with Christ. They teach things like the perpetual virginity of Mary, even after she gave birth to Jesus. Then there's the Immaculate Conception, which has nothing to do with Jesus being conceived. It is the doctrine that Mary herself was born in a sinless state. Now, none of those things are taught anywhere in the Bible. And yet there's so much of this floating around in religious circles that the real Mary... The one described in your Bible comes as a little bit of a shock. But I think an encouraging shock because as you look at this frightened, unsure, and yet faithful teenage girl, I think you will come across someone who is a great model for your faith in Jesus. As we go through this well-known story, I hope you'll come away convinced of this. That God gives grace sending his son so that we can serve. That God gives grace, sending his son so we would serve. Uh, We'll see that in three sections moving through this narrative this morning. First, in verses 26 through 29, we'll see a nobody who finds favor from God. A nobody who finds favor from God. Second, in verses 30 through 35, we see a promised child who is the son of God, a promised child who is the son of God. And then third and finally, in verses 36 to 38, we see a humble example of service to God. A humble example of service to God. And in all of this, we'll come away convinced that God gives grace, sending his son so that you and I can serve. Let's begin in that first section. A nobody finds favor from God. Now, I have to think that Luke would love the greatest Christmas pageant ever, um, partly because I think he has good literary tastes, um, but partly because he really loves that literary tool of contrasts. His book is chock full of contrasts, and this passage in particular has a series of contrasts I'm going to draw your attention to as we go through to the narrative that we looked at last week with our good friend Zechariah, who has now been in his cone of silence for about six months. We're told that six months later, the same angel Gabriel is dispatched from heaven, but to a very different place than last time. Remember last time, Gabriel went to the very seat of Israelite religious power, to Jerusalem. That's the place with the temple and the priests and all the festivals. Jerusalem, the place anyone who's anyone would go if they wanted to be pious. And not only did he go to Jerusalem, he went to see an old faithful priest of high esteem. Well, what a contrast it is that we're told in verse 26 that Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed whose name is Mary. Mary. Nazareth was not a town that came with a great reputation in that day. The, the word Nazareth comes from the Hebrew word for branch. So it's not wrong to say Nazareth was thought of as living in the sticks. It was out in the middle of nowhere. It was a small town of a couple hundred people, um, mainly farmers, mainly poor, so insignificant it wasn't on most of the maps. And it was known for having unsavory types, lots of Gentiles and Roman soldiers passing through. Uh, You might remember in John 1, Nathaniel, when he hears Jesus is from Nazareth, Nazareth says, can anything good come from Nazareth? With the implication that no, nothing good is expected to come from Nazareth. But that is the place, uh, the middle of nowhere, in which Gabriel is sent to talk to someone who frankly, in the world's eyes, is a nobody. Uh, Back in those days, women weren't held in very high esteem, especially so if they were poor. Uh, Mary, being a betrothed virgin, almost certainly would have been in her early teenage years, maybe 12 or 13 years old. Uh, Women back then were uneducated, and very little was expected of them. They were expected to stay out of trouble, to get married, have kids, and oh yes, stay out of trouble, don't bring reproach on your husband Now, Mary was already working her way through that. We're told she's betrothed to Joseph. That means she's through the first step of marriage that took about a year uh, before the marriage would actually be consummated in the second step. Now, in all of this, we're not given any remarkable details about Mary. The most interesting thing about her is who she's related to. She's betrothed to Joseph, who's of the house of David. And later on, we find out she's related to Elizabeth. So somehow or the other, she's related to a priestly family. But other than that, Mary is the picture of someone that people back then wouldn't give a second thought about. Someone that had no standing, no one expected much of, and no one spent much time thinking about. And yet, as this story will unfold, we'll see this person that no one in the world thinks about, God thinks a lot about, and in fact has an incredible plan for Now, Gabriel is sent to her, and he, uh, last week we saw that Gabriel used the very common angelic formula in the greeting to Zechariah, where he showed up and said, fear not, basically get up off the floor, you're not in trouble, you're not going to die, angels have to do this because they're intimidating. But look at verse 28, Gabriel starts off in a different place, and he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, that's confusing to Mary. We'll get to that in a second. But I think this might have been one of the most misunderstood verses in the entire history of the Bible. Because that phrase has found its way, through the interpretation of the Catholic Church, into Hail Mary, full of grace. The prayer that's repeatedly prayed as a part of the rosary. Now, that happened because someone, when translating uh, the Latin Vulgate, misunderstood what it meant to have found fav- favored one or found favor with God and translated it as, instead as full of grace. As if Mary was filled to the brim with grace like a piñata is with candy. So the thought is if she's so full of grace then she can dispense it to other people. But that totally misses what Gabriel is saying here. He, he is just saying, Mary, God's smiling on you. and I've got good news for you. Now, as an aside, I just have to think, uh, given how misunderstood that greeting was, I wonder when Gabriel got back to heaven, if one of his angelic superiors said, you know, Gabriel, next time just stick to the script, all right? Like, let's just, (laughs) I don't think Gabriel did anything wrong, just a funny aside. Okay, Um, so he greets her that way, and you can see in verse 29 that Mary doesn't understand what's going on. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Mary stood there. She thought about it. She pondered. She let her mind chase the spiritual rabbit trail in her head, trying to figure out what in the world is this angel saying? Uh, The way that's written, she was doing this over and over, uh, to the point where she starts to become troubled, almost anxious, What in the world does this mean? Now, we need to pause at this point because I think this is one of the places where it's obvious that Mary, while she's not someone you should pray toward or expect to give you grace, Mary's a wonderful example, a a virtuous example of how a Christian ought to behave. And in this case, she models for us something very important. Pondering and wondering on the grace of God revealed to her. Mary understands, and we'll see this as a character trait of hers, that it's important to think deeply when God reveals something to you. There are some thoughts that take more than 15 seconds to understand. There are some things that you need to turn over in your mind and chew on and meditate on and ponder so you can wonder. Mary's in the habit of doing that, and we'll see later that, as a result, she's able to treasure up things in her heart as God unveils them to her. But we as Christians need to cultivate this same sort of discipline, to have room in our walks with Christ, to chase the spiritual rabbits through our heads as we find these wonderful truths that God reveals through his word. You know, we live in a time that is full of so many distractions, You have smartphones and endless streams of media, and you can go from one thing to the next to the next to the next without ever having silence until you hit your pillow. Now, one of the downsides of that is you don't have any time to think. When I'm preparing for sermons, having time to think is one of the most prized commodities I could possibly have. Uh, some of the truths that God's word teaches take me a long time to understand. I, I try to turn them over and give myself room to chase after those spiritual rabbit trails. To be able to figure out what this is saying and what it means for you and I. Uh, now, I don't know what your life is like exactly, but I do know that you have need for some of this time yourself. Now, there is there are some seasons of life and some types of callings that God puts on us that make this harder than other seasons of life for others. If you have young kids in the house, maybe you desire nothing more than to have some peace and quiet to be able to contemplate. And yet you don't find yourself able to pull that off very often. Uh, Let's just recognize that that's a hard thing when this isn't available to you. Don't feel guilty about it. But also don't let yourself fall into the habit of thinking this is something you can do without. One day, Lord willing, you will have the ability to ponder And use it so you can wonder. At the same time, this is something we need to realize that silence and meditation is not a good unto itself. It's possible to meditate upon sinful things. And yet, what a great tool when it comes to God revealing himself. Showing us some of who he is through his grace. For us to be able to chew on it to turn it over in our minds to chase after that spiritual rabbit trail and ponder so that we can wonder at what God has revealed. So I'm sure Mary had a lot that she was thinking about at that moment, but her list of things to ponder and wonder about was about to get a lot longer because of the second point. A promised child who is the Son of God. A promised child who is the Son of God. In verse 30, we see the angel, uh, that Gabriel finally gets back on track. He says, uh, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Gabriel gets back to his standard angelic greeting, and then to the message. The, main, the crux of the message, you're going to have a son, another promised child. But do you notice this time? It's not delivered to old priest Zechariah. It's delivered to nobody Mary in the middle of nowhere. And the message it's given is meant to show us that in every way, the child promised is greater than the child that was promised to Zechariah and conceived by Elizabeth. There are three contrasts, if you put the two passages together, that communicate this. The first is that Mary's child will have a greater name. He will be called Jesus. You remember back to what the angel told Zechariah, he said that your son's name will be John, which means God has been gracious. But Jesus, Jesus means salvation, which means saving for people like you and I. Uh, Years ago, Precious and I were able to go over to Israel to do some street evangelism with Jews for Jesus in Tel Aviv. That was a very interesting experience because the name of Jesus conjures up something very different to the uh, most modern day Hebrews. They have been taught by their rabbis that the name of Jesus is a slight variation on the actual name of Jesus, which when spelled out means let his name be accursed, Which means when most modern Jews in Israel say Jesus, they actually are cursing Christ. So the evangelistic strategy is they send you out on the street with t-shirts that have in Hebrew, his name is Jesus, and then the corrected spelling, Jesus means salvation. Which is completely unheard of to someone who has always heard that Jesus' name is a curse word. Well, the name of Jesus carries with it this idea of his mission. That he is God's appointed one to come and save, to save his people from their sins. As Luke's gospel unfolds, we will see that is his mission, and we'll see how he accomplishes that. There's a second thing greater about Jesus. He has a greater role than John did. Zechariah was promised that he would have a son who was a great prophet, who would even pick up where God left off with his Old Testament, Old Covenant prophecies. But Jesus, on the other hand, is going to be the great king. Look at verses 32 and 33. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is described as great and as that's filled in, he, he is described as the Davidic king, the son of the Most High, a, a way of describing Davidic kings. And, and then it's, uh, language is coming straight out of 2 Samuel 7, where God told David that he would build for him a dynasty, that there would always be one of his sons reigning over his people Israel. Well, it turned out that God is fulfilling that in a way David never likely understood that he is going to have a king in the line of David that will reign forever because he will live forever. A king that is so much greater than every king that's come before him or any that would come after because he is a king that is immortal. John, as great as he is, is a mere forerunner to announce the coming of this king into the world. There's a third contrast. Jesus will be greater Because there will be a greater miracle done, bringing him into the world. Now Mary is starting to figure out that something pretty incredible is happening. In verse 34, she asks a question. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? She understands enough, being untaught, uneducated as she likely was, to know about the birds and the bees. And she's able to realize, wait a second, I'm not married yet. You're saying I'm going to conceive. How is this exactly going to work out? Now again, put this up next to Zechariah. Remember, Zechariah had a question for the angel. But his question was one of doubt. Prove to me this is going to happen. But notice Mary. Her question is one that comes from the angle of faith. It assumes, yes, what you said is true. I just don't understand how it's going to happen. It's more about the mechanics of it. Well, the angel reveals to her in verse verse 35 that it will happen through a miracle of God creating a child in her womb. It said two ways, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The first of those, the, the Holy Spirit coming upon you calls to mind Genesis 1 and 2, where the Spirit of the Lord is hovering over the waters of the unformed earth before God creates the world and everything in it. So it carries this idea of God doing a special work to create out of nothing. Uh, The second way, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, that's language that calls to mind the Shekinah glory, the the glory cloud in the temple, that used to represent God's presence amongst his people. It's a way of saying God is going to somehow visit you, and nothing to do with the birds or the bees or anything untwadry like that. He is going to do a special miracle to cause you to conceive this child, Jesus. Now, I don't think Mary likely realized in that moment The great magnitude of what had been revealed to her. Because God has, through the angel Gabriel, he has revealed two of the most glorious and two of the deepest doctrines in the entire Bible. The doctrine of the incarnation and of the Trinity. He has revealed that his will is to send his eternal son into this world to become a man. To to walk amongst us. That this is all part of the perfect plan of the triune God that always was and always will be. And he's revealed this glorious truth not to the pinnacle of priestly piety, Zechariah, in his cone of silence. No, he's revealed it to a nobody in the middle of nowhere. To the last person anyone would have picked. A confused teenager by the name of Mary. Mary. Now, brothers and sisters, I I think we are supposed to, at this moment, just have our jaw drop. That God in his wisdom would show these truths in this way, that's not something anyone could ever deserve. What grace it is to have been told these things. And what a joy it must have been, even for the small amount she must have understood at first, to be able to begin turning those things over in her heart and mind. God sending his son to save The eternal king of heaven coming down to live among us. And one day to reign over us on a remade earth forever. What truths that are worth spending a lifetime to ponder but these. Uh, As we slide our way into the Christmas season. I hope you will allow these truths to hit you afresh again. God really did this. As unlikely and unheard of as it is. This was his plan, long hidden, now revealed. And you get to, with the hindsight of history, you get to relive the joy each and every Christmas. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is the crux of the Christian message. That we could never earn our way to God or get grace from him by doing something, being virtuous enough or praying a certain way. That God had to initiate That he had to give us grace by sending his son, Jesus, to come and die as a sacrifice to save us from our sins. That same Jesus had to rise from the dead, conquering death, so that he could give you eternal life with God. And that same Jesus is the Lord. The Lord over all that is, and one day everyone will know that he is Lord of all. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, the response that you must have to this message is to turn from your sins, to repent of them, and trust in Jesus to do what God claimed he would and what the Bible says he did. If you do that, you will have something to ponder and wonder about every single year and every single day until your life on this earth ends or until Jesus comes back. Now, as wondrous as this all is, for this to be revealed to Mary and to all of us, let's realize that every time God reveals something to us, we are placed under an obligation. Then when God shows us something of himself or his grace, we need to respond somehow. And that's what brings us to our third and final point. A humble example of service to God. A humble example of service to God in verses 36 Through 38. Undoubtedly, one of the most difficult trials of faith any Christian can go through is the moment where a long sought after dream comes directly into conflict with God's revealed will for our lives. When your plan runs into God's plan, and you have to wrestle with the reality that God's plan needs to win was uh, instructed uh, reading the life story of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Back in the early 1900s, he rose to prominence in the medical field in England. He was a brilliant man. He f- flew through medical school from humble, uh, humble upbringing. And he finished all his schooling and uh, managed to get a, a very prestigious role underneath one of the top doctors in all of the U.K., Now, as a result of this, everyone knew he was one of the anointed upper crust of the medical world, that one day he would be one of the top dogs himself. As he was watching his dreams come true, though, he had the difficult choice to make because he realized that God was calling him to leave the medical profession and become a humble preacher he eventually came to grips with what God was asking him to do, to to leave behind the prestige and all the money that came with being a doctor and to move out into the middle of the sticks, out to Wales, a place no preacher wanted to go, to pastor a congregation that couldn't even support the preacher they were trying to call, to go and preach in obedience to God. Mary gives us a wonderful example, like Dr. Lloyd-Jones, of someone who had their life plan totally wrecked and yet who humbly even lovingly submits to God's will. And in so doing gives us a great example of how we too should seek to serve God. We're told then uh, uh, imagine what must have been going through Mary's mind as she heard this news from Gabriel. Wait a second. I'm supposed to have a promised son. I'm not married yet. I think this means I'm going to have this baby before I'm married. What's Joseph going to think? What if he doesn't believe me? What if my family and my friends don't believe me? Joseph might divorce me. That means I might have to bring up this promised child as a single mother. At a time where being a single mother was even harder than it is today. In that moment, God graciously helps Mary to have the faith needed to obey. Look what uh, happens in verse 36. The angel tells her that God has given her a sign to help her faith. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. He says, well, look at Elizabeth. Elizabeth, who is long past the flower of youth and unable to conceive, God has granted the gift of a promised child. Surely he can do the same for you. Because nothing will be impossible with God. God can do anything. Now the contrast here, again, is supposed to be very thick. Uh, Remember, Zechariah asked for a sign and was disciplined for it. Mary didn't ask for a sign at all, and yet God graciously provided it. But the principle that is underneath this is, Do you really believe God can do whatever he sets out to do? If you believe God is omnipotent, that there is nothing too hard for him to do, that he has no shortage of resources or time, that he never gets bored, that he never loses focus, that there'll never be an enemy that could prevent him from accomplishing what he sets out to do, then why in the world would any of us ever tell God, No, thanks God. You may tell me to do this, but I'm not going to do it. It's impossible that you could use me to do that. That was the hill that Mary had to climb. And praise God, he has given us an example of someone who climbed it faithfully. Look at the way she responds, 38. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary said, Lord, if you want it, I want it. Uh, Even if I don't understand how you're going to do it exactly, even if it seems like it's impossible, I trust you. I trust that when you say to do something, it's for a good reason. And that when you set out to do something, you do it. Mary gives us a wonderful example here of submitting to God's will for our lives. Even if it means leaving behind The things we seemed we so desperately needed, even our own dreams. I fear that too many people today have absorbed a form of Christianity that has more to do with Walt Disney than it does with the Bible. There are preachers that you can find, many of them on TV, that will tell you that you just need to believe hard enough. Or you need to obey well enough. Or you just need to pursue doggedly enough your dream, whatever it may be. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And if you do that, then God will surely let your dream come to pass. And then and only then will you have joy. But there's a problem, friend. We are limited, broken creatures. Even our minds and our hearts so often lead us astray. And and that means many of our dreams will never happen. And even some of the ones that do happen will turn out to be nightmares. Some of the things that you want the most could end up being the most painful things in your life if God were to grant them to you. Now, as a Christian, we should know that a far better way to go through life is with the resolve that whatever God wants is what I want. If that means dying to myself, that means denying myself. Whatever God wants is what I want, and whatever he has for me is what is right for me. Mary shows us a wonderful example of someone who didn't understand the full picture, had every reason to be frightened, and yet in faith declares, I will humbly serve the Lord because what he wants is what's right for me. So I need to ask my dear brothers and sisters, are you consciously submitting yourselves to the will of God in your life? Is there anything in your life where you know what God wants you to do? Maybe it's Someone he wants you to reconcile with. Maybe it's some big step of obedience It seems very risky. Whatever it is, God has made it clear to you, this is the thing that it means to do if you are going to be faithful. And are you, for one reason or the other, finding excuses not to do it? Friend, whatever that thing may be, the answer is always to obey. To submit yourself to the will of God and to trust him for the results. Now that doesn't mean it's not going to be difficult. Mary had many difficult days ahead. But it does mean you will find yourself protected by his peace inside your heart. Upheld by his joy even through difficult circumstances. And with a clear conscience. Because you know you are serving the one who you were made to serve. Mary had so much that she didn't understand at this point. And yet what she knew, she was pondering, and over time would lead her into wondering. Little by little, she would turn these things over in her head, chew on them, chase the spiritual rabbit trails, until one day her joy would be full. She would see God's grace come down, incarnate before her eyes, and the sun she would bear. Our Savior Jesus, what a a blessed role she had. Even though she's not co-redemptrix of heaven, even though she's not someone you should pray to or someone you should expect to receive grace from, she undoubtedly is someone you can learn a lot about when it comes to following Jesus. The scene ends with Gabriel leaving her behind. And I have to think that Mary must have spent whatever daylight hours were left Chewing and thinking, pondering and wondering at the grace she had received of a son that was sent so that she and you and I might serve. Now, brothers and sisters, we're going to end our time together in a way that's a little different than our, the way we normally do. If you're not in the habit of having moments of silence and meditation, Um, We're going to try and do something together that maybe would help get you started, a little bit of traction on this important discipline. Um, So what we're going to do is we're going to take about a minute, and there's going to be some soft music playing, and I want you to use this time to ponder, to wonder, to chase the spiritual rabbit trails through your mind and heart of what you've just heard of the grace of God. Now, if you've never done something like this before, I'll give you a few tips If there's something that feels like it got pushed a little bit harder into your heart, maybe something that pricked you a little bit, ask the Lord how you can take a step in obedience related to that. Try, if you can, to come up with a way, even if it's just a small step, to take a step of obedience in that area, whatever it is. Or maybe you don't have anything that's come to mind yet. Maybe you use this time to pray silently and to ask God, what is it I'm supposed to take away from the sermon? Spend a minute doing that and see if something comes to your mind or your heart. Or maybe you just pick up some other thing that you know of the Christmas story that causes you to ponder and wonder. And you chase that spiritual rabbit trail on your own and, and see where it leads. Whatever it is, use this time. And use it well, and I hope it will encourage you to do this on your own. After the, about a minute of it, um, I'll come back up and pray, and we'll sing one more song before we end the service. Let's do this in awe of Jesus.